Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Cave Story, uh, released in 2004 for Windows PCs, and it has made its way to a variety of platforms since then, uh, PSP, Wii, Nintendo DS, etc., etc., and even Nintendo Switch. We could talk a little bit about the developer here, because it was just one developer, Daisuke Arnaya, uh, who goes by Pixel, uh, developed this game over five years in his free time. For me, this was one of the first true indie games. This was back in 2004. There wasn't the indie scene that there was now. You could be a one-man developer studio and get stuff out there. Like This kind of indie scene developed as a way to get around those distribution gatekeepers. Yeah, this is the game that, to my mind, was sort of the starting gun for the indie revolution. It kind of made people realize that indie games could be as good or better as some of your favorite retro games. Now, this game has some very clear retro influences, despite the fact that it came out in 2004, you know, Metroid being chief among them to my eye. It really, like, taught a generation that maybe didn't grow up with uh, the first wave of console video games that you don't have to have the best graphics to look and play in a really appealing way. Yeah, this felt like a better, more mature version of a classic SNES game to me. This game is not perfect, but I think its shortcomings need to be graded on, like, the biggest curve ever because it's, you know, basically it was a one-man show. You know, like, holy shit, art, music, design, writing, all one man? Like, that's wild. And being a trendsetter, too. I guess I didn't know that going into the game, and, and that does change how I feel about it a little bit, but yeah, that's a big undertaking for one person to do, for sure. Yeah, after our high-fidelity uh, AAA adventure through Raccoon City, this is an interesting palate cleanser to sort of take <laughs> us back down to Earth and, uh, you know, remind us that video games occupy a variety of aesthetics. <laughs> and, you know, this game has its share of dark moments, too, uh, while it, it does sort of put on, like, a cheerful aesthetic right up front. Uh, it's more serious than it looks at first. It seems like nothing special. You're a robot who wakes up, you're suffering amnesia, you don't know who you are or where you're going or what you're supposed to do, but you fight people until you get the answers. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, very much sort of a run-and-gun action platformer slash Metroidvania. You get a, a variety of different guns and weapons as you're going through the uh, the island, the cave, so to speak, which is actually a cave inside of a floating island slash meteor type thing. Exploring that and learning sort of the inner workings and all of the characters that inhabit it and have inhabited it throughout history uh, is one of the main things that you're doing in this game. I would say talking about the plot a little bit right here, um, I feel it is a little bit maybe backloaded in the game. Like when you first start out, you kind of go into it thinking, oh, I don't know what's going on or what should be going on. Um, here's some. Here's a rabbit village. I guess there are villages of rabbits in this world. Um, and it doesn't do any hand-holding really telling you, like, here's an opening cinematic of what happened beforehand. You just kind of start out in the thick of things. Yeah, it's very much in media res. Like, you show up halfway through the overall story of the island in this game. Like, it, it, it's a cold open with, like, a transmission from uh, someone you don't know to another person you don't know. Using instant <laughs> message. That's how you yeah. can tell it was started in the 90s. Yep, got the aim open. Man, wonder what the away messages were. 
Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I don't know what quotes away message would be, but he was offline for a long time before randomly waking up in a cave, so I'm assuming he had to have one. I think just ellipses. We have your typical silent protagonist over here. That's a good point. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that open, because I think this game's tutorial area is something that like is on par with level 1-1. It's just, it, it does such a good job of sort of teaching you the very basics, even if you've like never so much as touched a platformer before, that I really think it's worth sort of just talking through a little bit. Yeah, I think it does a good job introducing the mechanics of the game. Um, it very much um, sets you up so that there's only one way to go forward. You'll see a door or a pathway going somewhere else, but you can't do anything to get to it. So you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'll come back to this later. That's right. It immediately teaches you that you can go right and left, right? Oh, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so many options. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And like, uh, then immediately it dead ends into where you get your first weapon. So it's teaching you that like, hey, equipment's a thing. And on the way, you're going to have to jump over stuff and avoid spikes. So, you know, it's it's one of those levels that like teaches you all the verbs and sort of sets the stakes all at once. It's a pretty neat little introductory area, in my opinion. Worth saying is that with platformers too, it's almost necessary to have a tutorial or safe area where you can get a feel for the mechanics. Um, different platformers have very different kind of uh, mechanics with them. Like when you jump, what happens? A uh, classic example, in Mario, you can still control the plumber as he's moving around through the air and in prince of persia the original arcade game you jump and you're jumped you can't control anything until he lands kind of like real life yeah or or can you double jump things like that like you need to find out before you're thrust into the world as a whole i guess before you put it into any sort of challenges or anything demanding of the player they give you this kind of safe learning area yeah, and you guys mentioned a couple of the mechanics, and we, we talked a little bit about them in the tutorial area, but, you know, obviously jumping and shooting are kind of the two main things you're doing here, and I want to talk a little bit about the jump, because if there's one thing, you know, I don't think is perfect about this game is the jump. It's like a very floaty-ass jump, like you are, you're really hanging up there, like gravity has to be reduced on this cave for, or something. Actually, uh, I just did the whole Ludum Dare jam thing, and this is the first platformer oh no i guess i've made some platformer stuff before but uh one of the things when i was refreshing my platforming mechanics is a lot of times games will double the gravity on the way down for you to make the controls feel less floaty so you float up but come down real hard basically yeah i think it's because you know if you're jumping you're doing it to get up and like the coming back down that's just a drag man as anyone who's uh, woken up the next day with a hangover can tell you. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so uh, we also mentioned guns um, and the game's way that it treats its guns and your power up of those guns is interesting. Uh, if again, not perfect because it uses this system where every enemy drops triangles and those add power and power your gun up to three different levels and those sort of articulate in different ways depending on the gun you have what'd you guys think of this i thought this was pretty cool especially because so not only does it level your gun up but if you get hit it levels it back down so you're constantly trying to maintain perfection so that you can level your guns up and keep it at a level it almost like really double punishes you for sucking because not not only are you not getting to use a good gun anymore, but you're also 
getting your ass kicked. It's it, it's the kick you while you're down thing almost. I think that comes up in an interesting way during boss battles. How many of you had a favorite gun in the game and then you get whacked a couple of times in a boss battle and all of a sudden, well, it's now the suckier version of that. So you have to move on to something else and adjust on the fly what your tactics are. Yeah, there's and there's a big variety of weapons in this game. Like by the end of it, I think there's seven guns that you have at your disposal. So, and they all have their own level of triangles that is disparate from the the other one. And the weird thing about it is is they start playing with that system by the end of it too, where some of the last weapons you get in the game are actually most powerful unupgraded. So if you happen to pick up a triangle, they start to suck, which is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought it added some nice depth to it. Because at the beginning, I thought this felt pretty shallow. And then they started adding in that mechanic. I'm like, okay, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, you start to treat it as a secondary energy system. But, you know, at the beginning, Clint, you're right, where you just have your polar star and you're walking around. Like, it's very much like a rich get richer, poor get poorer system when it starts. And that can feel rough. Yeah, it was definitely a slow start. But it snowballs pretty fast once you get started. And especially once you have multiple weapons. <laughs> Before we get too far into all this, I encountered an extreme anomaly. Uh, my game was not dropping triangles. It was dropping candy corns. <laughs> there were no rabbits. Every So when I got to the village, everyone was dressed up in costumes. And I thought this was just like, okay, this is a weird... I didn't realize this was a Halloween-themed <laughs> game. And then like two hours in, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I, had, I, I texted Brian, I'm like, is this supposed to be a Halloween game? Because everything in here is Halloween. Like, people are dressed up as Darth Vader and Freddy Krueger, and I'm like, this can't be right. And I thought you were going <laughs> fucking nuts, because I... <laughs> no, this... Nobody talks about it at all. Oh, man. It was weird. So this must be a this week only thing because of Halloween. But uh, he must have gone to some extreme lengths to rebrand this for every freaking holiday, because every character was wearing a Halloween costume. Uh, the hearts were pumpkins... <laughs> the, uh, the the triangles were candy corns, and like every environment was totally sp- spooky rebranded. It, it was crazy. I think they do a rebranding for Christmas too, but I think those are the only two holidays. Oh God, I was thinking like, what if he does this for every freaking Valentine's Day? <laughs> I I really want to go back and play this at Christmas now. Like that sounds crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> I actually tried. I tried, I tried to turn it off halfway through the game, but. All the characters I'd already gotten to know, I knew them by the way they already looked. I'm like, nah, I'm turning it back. So I, I played the whole thing in Halloween mode. So I may have missed something entirely. Hard to say. We'll, we'll keep you honest. I do think it's crazy that they just sort of boot you into that if you start the game around Halloween rather than saying like, hey, do you want to turn on seasonal aesthetics or whatever? It's in it's in the options menu, but it's defaulted to on. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Why default that to on? Like, that's wild. At least pop up a window or something. Can you imagine if you're halfway through the game and then it goes over whatever <laughs> dateline it is and all of a sudden the main character shows up with like a Darth Vader mask and just doesn't explain anything about it. That is ridiculous. Like it was it, it made the game very weird and it probably made the, the the story a little too silly for me. I thought the whole thing was the whole story was a little dumb, but then again I was experiencing it with a totally different aesthetic. Like there's a guy in a V for Vendetta mask telling me that you know, he's the king and his, you know, he's trying to save his village. I'm like, I can't take you seriously. The other guy's wearing a Darth Vader mask and you're dressed up as Count Chocula. Like, what the fuck is going on around here? So there is like, you know, this game's story is like, it's campy uh, for sure. You know, all video game stories are to a degree. But I do think that this game 
was unique in that I think the writing is actually not bad for an indie game made by one guy. It's It shows that a Metroidvania-style game can function with good writing, you know, because up till now, if you saw a Metroidvania game, it was Castlevania or Metroid, and those aren't known for their writing. Yeah, it's it's more than just go get the big bad, and that's the end of the story kind of thing. Well, I think, again, the story for this hits you a little harder as it goes on. Um, it, it takes a while to develop its characterization. It does that mostly through in-game cinematic cutscene sort of things, uh, just kind of like scripting action within the game engine and some dialogue add on top of that. But like Brian said, it gets a little bit darker later on. Like, um, yeah, when like when Curly Brace dies, like your your only helper and spoilers. Um, but yeah, you're if you unless you do some very specific things, your main helper slash sidekick in this game just like gets offed halfway through. They don't pull punches in terms of like the stakes in this game. Like it's not a happy story there where everyone turns out okay at the end. Um, you know they and aside from like dealing with relatively mature themes of like death and genocide, um, they also do a good deal of indirect storytelling throughout it where you can sort of figure out like what quotes initial purpose for coming to this island was through some storytelling by other characters i kind of thought that was one of the better ways they said things earlier on like uh you learn you're a soldier from the surface you learned that the soldiers from the surface were sent to massacre anything that lived on the island when you first learn that it kind of has you questioning what you are or what your character is trying to do that was a good beat I definitely agree. Like, you know, even just implying, like, characters mentioning the surface, quote-unquote, tells you that, like, there's an other aspect out there that you're not aware of or don't even really get to see. Like, a game set on, quote-unquote, the surface in this world would be an entirely other game that's pretty, that sounds like it'd be pretty interesting. Setting those stakes right up front that this is some weird island floating in space and things aren't normal here is kind of a cool, like, just way to put your game in a really unique setting. Well, part of it, too, means that you can craft the world you want to instead of having to pay kind of like homage or keep in mind how the real world is if you're in an island world like hey there's a giant core to this island it keeps it floating sure why not one thing i don't think this game does really well to keep itself moving forward is some of the adventure game mechanics it tries to shoehorn in um you know, the the flagging on some of the events, like you have to go over here to talk to this guy so that this other thing appears so you can kill it and get the item to open the door over here. It just, it, it seems inelegant to me at times. And again, like, I'm far from me to, like, deduct points from a game that was incredibly ahead of its time made by one guy, but, like... Oh, we can deduct the points. <laughs> having an editor for some of these adventure game hooks would have been great. Yeah, uh... I also feel like there was a lot of unnecessary backtracking in this game. Backtracking that more just padded the game's length instead of adding anything new to it. Like, in Metroidvanias, oftentimes you're backtracking because you got a new ability, and uh, that new ability makes it easier to get through different areas, or the old areas, um, makes you feel like you've made, made some progress, but, you know... This game will have you go to one end of a level and then immediately back to the other end of the level, maybe a couple of times if you want to test out a couple of secret paths. And to me, that felt like, eh, strike against it game design-wise. Yeah, that strikes me, especially in that uh, level where you're collecting the dogs. It's just 
back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and i'm just like can we be done with this i heard on the switch version you can stack all the dogs on your head you want instead of just there you go you you can and i played the switch version for this uh particular outing (laughs) for just this reason (laughs) yeah yeah, basically i paid uh thirty dollars for that (laughs) it's worth the extra 10 bucks right there i mean you can wear five dogs as a hat that sounds pretty great yeah no but you're right i mean uh, josh you hit on something key like backtracking in metroidvania games is interesting because it recontextualizes areas and if you're taking the recontextualization out of the backtracking then it's just padding it's not yeah that that uh that that recap was almost supposed to be like an aha moment like oh holy shit i didn't know this was over here or i didn't realize these two rooms are connected the whole time and it's like a cool moment that moment was just like oh my god i have to go back here again (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah it definitely it missed that a little bit but you know this game came way before the you know cavalcade of metroidvania games started coming out in the modern era so yeah i'll i'll give it a pass and say like generally speaking it it advanced itself in a reasonably good pace. For the time, it did well with itself. Um, and another thing that this game did that I thought was kind of interesting is it had a variety of secrets in it, uh, including a entire secret ending. But they kind of they did a buttload of secrets in this game, like old school playground style secrets, like um, you know secret weapons, secret rooms, secret areas, hidden blocks that'll and power ups that you can get to. Like there's all kinds of secrets scattered throughout this game that. You know, you don't see very often in in modern games. Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's one secret that you would not find on your own. It's like uh, involving some really obscure jumping in obscure places, but it allows you to play as Curly Brace on the next playthrough you do. But then, more more to the point of the plot, there's the uh, what you were talking about. If you don't go after, don't like try to save one of the main characters as they fall in front of you. And then you do another specific, like look around in this lake for a specific item. Then you're able to um, get to the secret ending, uh, the the really good ending, which is what I tried to do and failed because damn, this game ramps up the difficulty, something fierce at that moment. Yeah, we should definitely talk about how ridiculous the the true ending endgame sequence is. Like, it is massacore difficult to the nth degree. But I want to talk about getting there a little bit first, because I think this is, like, probably one of the most BS things that the game does. Like, to get that true ending, you know, you have to basically follow, like, a step-by-step flowchart of things to, to get to it. And it requires you to, one forego getting a machine gun seriously forego getting a jetpack really who's not gonna want a jetpack and then three save someone from drowning curly brace which requires an item you can easily miss and finally navigate that ridiculously hard final dungeon that you were talking about josh like it is ridiculous you can do this without having or with having the machine gun. Like I had the machine gun most of the time. Um, worth noting here is the machine gun acts as a sort of jetpack as it, of its own. If you shoot it downwards, you go upwards. And I think one of the reasons this game became more difficult is like uh, you. The first part of the game is designed for you to either have the wimpy little pistol gun or the machine gun. And it's also designed for you to have, like, the weak-ass jetpack or the really good jetpack. Um, And all the puzzles and the platforming, they all work 
regardless of what combination you have. I think part of the reason the um, I got to the last cave and then checked out after that. I beat this game maybe 10 years ago, so I didn't feel like I had to go through it again. But this last cave level is the first level they go to where they know, okay, this is... You do have the jetpack here, the good jetpack. We're dealing with a true G now, so we're not going to pull any punches. <laughs> well, it's like they can design the puzzles and platforming around it very specifically, as opposed to before where they had to take into uh, account different combinations of equipment people might have. Good point. And not only did they require to make it compatible with any different sort of loadout, but it also required to work forward and in reverse. So designing entire levels so that they work as platformer platforming sequences both in one direction and in the other is a feat in itself as well. Like how, what do you mean? Just when you're doing the backtracking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely interesting. And, you know, I don't think how they structured the acquiring of the final end game was very good. I think, you know, that, that like really incredibly difficult massacre thing always tends to rub me the wrong way, you know, gating content behind something like that, you know, as we've discussed in, say, a Sekiro or something like that. Yeah, but that is a slow burn on the on upward trend for difficulty. These games, and we've had a couple, and I'm blanking right now for some stupid reason, but where it's like, okay, 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 and you get to the last boss, and it's like, okay, we just... Yeah, where it spikes. Change this 300% right at the end for no apparent reason. You're just like, what the hell, guys? Come on. That's Sekiro.txt. That's also... It, you know, at some point in Celeste, they pulled that beat. The boss sequences in Celeste, per, per se, maybe. Um, or yeah. Hollow Knight. I remember we all got through the main ending of that. But then if you want the good ending, well, you got to do some sign of some massacre platforming and boss beating and things like that. That's actually probably the best example is this, this is very comparable to Hollow Knight. How about the music of this game? When I boot this game up for, I don't know, first time in 10 or 15 years, I didn't realize how much I knew that theme song. Yeah, that's so good. (laughs) Definitely a strong point for the game, for sure. I felt like it's if I forgot the Mario theme, and then I played that, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's where this is from. Yeah, the game has just a bunch of really good music in it, and um, even like when you first go into like the grasslands area or the sand area, they've got some really like, all right, setting out on adventure music and man, uh, I don't know, like there's probably four or five tracks that I came back to, uh, when I heard them again in this playthrough and like immediately just started humming along cause I knew every line, like they are old school, melodic and memorable. Like they all have a very solid melody. One thing I particularly liked about this game, which I don't remember other games doing, um, they have the theme music that plays when you're at the, you know, the title credits and all that, uh, or the title screen. Um, But then that theme gets developed with a farther melody when you reach the plantation right before you go face the final boss and everything. And it kind of like gives an epic little feeling of epicness to it. Uh, Like this is kind of... The culmination, uh, culmination, but the uh, kind of fulfillment of the whole game is leading up to this moment. A great little bit of, I don't know if you want to call it foreshadowing or just like music coolness, but whatever it was, it was pretty great. Once again, this is a a dude who has all of these other skills. You know, he drew this 
pretty cool looking pixel art. He developed a, a development or a, a game engine and wrote the story. And then on top of that, he wrote some kick-ass chip tunes. Like, man, <laughs> what a renaissance man of gaming. I think I think he's more of a musician than a game designer myself. That was my favorite part of the whole game. I mean, not that it was bad, but the music was his hallmark for sure. You're right. The one like unequivocally good thing about this game is the music. All of the tunes were, you know, not only were there some very good, cheerful, encouraging tunes, but there was also some fairly emotional tunes, some fairly like tense music as well. Like he set the mood pretty well with chip tunes, and you know, chip tunes have come a long way since the '90s, but he he brought the chiptune to its fullest. Did, uh, did he end up making anything else after this? So yeah, interestingly enough, he had... Uh, the only other games of his that I'm aware of are all on mobile. So he had some other games in the cave story aesthetic. I don't know if they're necessarily in the universe, but they are called Pink Hour, Carol Blaster, and Pink Heaven. And I played two of those. I played some of Carol Blaster and I played Pink Hour, which they're all right. They're like pretty standard, you know, touchscreen platformers and, you know, even... The greatness of the pixel can make a touchscreen platformer good. Like, man, you can't win with a touchscreen platformer, man. <laughs> Need that no. haptic feedback. A little bit of a bummer that, like, this guy, you know, with all his skill, has not necessarily, you know, put out another thing like a Cave Story sequel or something like that, you know, or, or even something like it. But Carablaster has its own charms. I think that's sort of the other main one by him. And it still has good music, I'll put it that way. So it seems like he kicked off the movement and then let it be. Yeah, yeah, kind of. That's okay, too. Another really interesting thing about this game back in its history is, like, it existed and still exists as freeware. You know, like, the original release in this of 2014 was free on cavestory.org, and as far as I'm aware, it's still free there. So... Then why the hell did I spend 20 bucks on Steam? I was I was going to bring this up. Like, this is a very expensive old game. It costs 20 bucks on Steam right now. You cannot find a deal anywhere. And if you buy it on Switch, it's 30 freaking bucks. There's no reason for it to go on sale if it's still free on cavestory.org. See, someone forgot to mention this to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's interesting you put it that way, though, because this guy, you know, put five years of work into this game off hours you know not his his working time and then put it out to the public for free in 20 2004 and it wasn't until 2011 that he teamed up with someone to publish this game i don't even know who i can't even remember how this ended up coming to be but it wasn't until 2011 that this game was monetized in any way shape or form so it really is kind of crazy how long this guy toiled in obscurity is that what cave story plus is then that's the monetized version? I don't think so. I think Cave, it was just Cave Story that came out on Steam at that point, and then, or, or somewhere else. But um, Cave Story Plus is actually a re-release. It was much later. Like This game has several versions over the course of it, and Cave Story Plus is the most recent one that came out on PC, Switch, and a couple other 
consoles, I think, maybe maybe another Nintendo console, but it includes like a couple of the older versions and it includes like the Cave Story 3D, which had updated graphics and some different sound things and stuff like that. But And evidently, uh seasonal freaking reskins, which <laughs> <laughs> That's where those twenty bucks went to. <laughs> yeah, as cool as that was, I think that did really detriment my playthrough. It would have been cool as a second playthrough, but I didn't really see the game as intended. I saw it as this weird little funky reskin and i think it really kneecapped the uh the story for me because it was hard to take it seriously at all yeah i could see that being a really weird way to like experience this game for the first time i feel kind of bad that that's how it worked out for you it is kind of a funny story though (laughs) yeah (laughs) well i think um you know we're talking about the influence this game had on the indie scene um i think one of the big things that it did was to show people that it was possible to create a game yourself to put it out there um it didn't have to be less of a game than anything else obviously you're not going to get the triple a graphics but you can get a game as good as anything else that you got yeah that's a good point i was actually listening to a podcast recently i think it was designer notes on the idle thumbs network uh they interviewed the gentleman behind catabolt adam saltzman and um they Basically, during the course of that interview, he brought up the fact that like, when he was doing a job and developing games in his free time, when he finally saw Cave Stories, when it clicked to him, clicked with him that he didn't need to develop something with a really intense like physics-based game engine like was the trend at the time, and he could create like something that was on human scale and started to develop something in 2D that was pixel graphics. And, you know, we got several games from him because of that, you know, Catabolt and uh, other really interesting titles. Yeah, I think for that, this was the coolest the coolest thing this game added, was just what it gave the industry. Because we've gotten some really awesome gems. I think half the games we play are probably, or more, are, are indie games. And they're some of the best games out there these days. People are actually hating on Call of Duty and, and the big AAA games these days because indie games are showing them up and they're being created by a team of you know less than 10 people instead of you know a, a room full of 40 to 100 people over the course of five years. It's... Well, I feel part of that is because the larger your studio is and the larger your team is, the more conservative you have to be because it's not about making something innovative so much as it is uh, making sure you sell enough copies to justify its expense. And I don't think that indie games are more successful. I probably think they're less successful than your standard AAA fare. But I also think that there's going to be more indies out there trying crazy things out and creating their own genres in time. Yeah, they push the envelope and really they, they push the art form. That's the thing. Like, again, studios are out to make money for their stakeholders, right? So they're going to make the same stuff that they know has been working since 1990. We're still making, I mean, I love them, but we're still making the same first-person shooter as ever. However, you get these crazy indie games that aren't beholden to a stakeholder, and they just want to make something that really makes you question the industry as a whole, and video games is an art form, and I love that that's where the industry has gone. You know, taking a chance on something and pushing the craft forward, after all, this is a podcast about the art and craft of video games, uh, it's an important thing. And not needing to make six fucking iterations of the same game. Just make one good one and be done with it. Move on. Next thing. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there definitely hasn't been six iterations of Cave Story. <laughs> you know, this game definitely inspired a lot of people. And uh, I'm glad it did. 
because it's uh, it's got a lot of cool ideas, cool aesthetics, and kick-ass music. Do you guys want to do some three-word reviews? Let's do it. All right. So this game was a thumbs up for me, and my three-word review for this would be old school scene. Uh, playing this game was a big nostalgia trip for me. Uh, it, you know, I played it 10, 15 years ago, back in college, whenever that was. Uh, but also because of what it took inspiration from in terms of its pixel graphics, uh, chiptunes, Metroidvania action, and what it inspired later on. Uh, I kind of see this as the start of what I call in my head the golden age of indies. There is this part period of time between call it cave story and when you have what we call the triple i studios anything devolver digital things like that like there was a i feel like a lot of experimentation going on during this time period um i felt like it was easier to keep track of everything too uh you could you would hear about the odd games that would come out because Hey, this is the indie game that came out this week, so people are going to be talking about it. So, mine was interesting. I actually have a... It's not thumbs up or thumbs down. I was kind of indifferent on this game. It had some cool things. It had some things that really just didn't do it for me. I was... Uh, my three-word review is, Miss the Boat. I don't think the game missed the boat, but I think, uh, I think I did. So, the problem was, you guys experienced this back in 2004. I didn't. Um, and this is a testament to the game itself. It kicked off this whole indie scene... Uh, games that have outshined it 20, 30 times over. So it's hard to enjoy this game after already enjoying all, all the things that it, that it you know, inspired. It, it was a cool game. It had some really cool things, especially the music. Um, but for what it did for the industry, big thumbs up. To play it now, nothing too special, but definitely worth a nod for, for what it brought. Yeah, so my three-word review is One Man Masterpiece. Uh, this game, to me, is inspiring, if not influential. Uh, this is probably the most money anyone has ever made off of a freeware game, outside of Doom, maybe. Uh, you know, it's been ported to fucking everything, uh, so I think their Doom comparison lives true there. You could probably play this game on a toaster at this point. Um, <laughs> but it's a game that shows what it's possible for one person to do and while it didn't blaze a ton of trails in terms of its game design uh, it did inspire a generation to blaze some trails of their own so I think for that I have to give it a big thumbs up for me and next month's game is drumroll please Dark Souls <laughs> dear god it's finally happening. That's right. We are taking on the one that started the Souls-like trend in modern gaming. Uh, obviously, I am super excited about this one. It's influential and inspiring with a healthy dose of soul-crushing. So, get ready. <laughs> I mean, how many games can you find these days that say, we're Souls-like, we're Souls-like? It's the new roguelike. I know it's not exactly a hot take, but everyone want to be Souls. It's Brian's favorite game, so buckle up and get ready, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, these guys are going to tether me back down to earth as I try and explain to them why this game is so great. Uh, <laughs> it's a turning point for a studio and honestly kind of a turning point for a lot of the industry. So I am really excited to uh, talk through it, see what makes it special, what makes it worth emulating, uh, and hopefully we can get through at least a good chunk of it. So from us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on gaming.
I'm pretty excited uh, to talk through uh, good old Dark Souls next month. That'll be good. That'll be good. I knew you would be. <laughs> yeah. But what will you compare everything to if it's already <laughs> to Dark Souls? <laughs> Shit. <You> totally owned. <laughs> <laughs>